Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today, the debut episode of the Members Only Podcast, we introduce the show and talk about where we're hoping to take things in the future. Not only that, we do our first mobster biography where we cover the life and times of Tommy Gagliano, one of the most low-key and mysterious mobsters in the history of Cosa Nostra and a founding godfather of the American Mafia as we know it today. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society their stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore, and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters, and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Members Only Podcast, a podcast about the American Mafia, as well as portrayals of the mob, in movies and TV. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a history buff and mob aficionado. Let me just start by putting this out there. I am in no way, nor have I ever been associated with organized crime. I'm just a guy who, number one, has a passion for history, number two, who finds the mob and that culture endlessly fascinating, and number three, who has studied the American mafia for about 15 years. Not only that, I've got a creative itch and I'm always working on side projects and I've decided that it could be kind of fun to bring my passion and interest in the mob to life through the creation of this podcast and also my YouTube channel. As this is a brand new podcast, let me give you an idea of what you can expect. In the coming weeks and months, my goal is to do a mix of mob biographies mixed with mob movie and television reviews, as well as Q&As and maybe even reaction videos focused on breaking down popular mob content. Between real life and Hollywood, there is no shortage of amazing mob stories to tell. And my goal is not just to talk about the guys you know, the Carlo Gambinos, the Tony Accardos, the John Gottis. Everybody is doing or has done that. My focus will be on telling the stories of lesser known or just less famous mobsters and to give you the background detail behind your favorite mob genre movies and shows. 
Of course, there's going to be no way around some of the bigger players, but especially when I'm talking about the real mob, the big names will likely not always be the primary protagonist in my story. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, I'd be in your debt, so to speak. If you'd subscribe to my YouTube channel, follow me on Twitter and Facebook, or listen to me wherever you get your podcasts. Additionally, I'll be starting a Patreon channel soon for those that would like to donate to the show so that I can keep producing content. And now, without further ado, let's get started with our first mobster biography. I know I'd go from rags to Here's something the average movie fan may not know. In the 1990 mob classic Goodfellas, the movie is primarily based around a crew in which of the five families? I'll give you a minute. If you guess the Gambinos, who get a one-line mention after one of their members, Billy Bats, is whacked, you'd be dead wrong. It's actually the Lucchese family being represented, and specifically the focus is on the Paul Barrio crew, Paul Cicero in the film, who was at the time a very powerful Kappa regime, and which included, of course, Henry Hill, played by Ray Liotta, and Jimmy Burke, Jimmy Conway in the film, and portrayed by the great Robert De Niro. The movie covers this Lucchese crew during the time period between the late 1950s and the early 1980s. But of course, the family wasn't always called the Lucchese family. It was originally headed by one Mr. Gattiano, Tommy Gagliano, and was only renamed later. And this is who we'll be talking about today. It's kind of ironic that in my first episode, I decided to choose the mob boss of which there is probably the least amount of available information. But I thought, what the hell? Why not start with the challenge? So here it goes. Hope you like it. Will not come true, or will I go from rags to return? Gattiano Tommy Gagliano was the original boss of what the U.S. federal authorities would later designate as the Lucchese crime family, one of the five families of New York City. He was probably the lowest profile boss in the history of the American Cosa Nostra and presided over the family for over two decades. His successor was his longtime lieutenant, underboss, and the family's current namesake, one Tommy Three Finger Brown Lucchese. As it has been said, if the primary ingredients for being a successful Cosa Nostra boss are keeping a low profile, avoiding arrest, shunning media publicity, and longevity, then you'd be hard-pressed to find someone with a more impressive tenure than Tommy Gagliano. Gagliano is one of the biggest enigmas ever in the American mob. In fact, there is hardly any information about him at all, especially after he became his family's first godfather. In my research, instances where he is mentioned typically talk about his role in the Castellamorese War and his selection as the family's boss in 1931. But after that, most information dries up until his death 20 years later. After 1931, the only exceptions to this would be when he takes a pinch and does a small bit of jail time and when he attends future mob rat Joe Valachi's wedding on September 18, 1932. After that, he is not heard from until his death. And get this, even his actual death date has been disputed. Even for the time, being this low-key was damn near impossible and actually quite impressive.
let's go back to Tommy's early life. Gaziano Tommy Gagliano was born on May 29, 1883 in the longtime mob stronghold of Corleone, Sicily. Side fact, this is the same city that Vito Corleone, the great Don played by Marlon Brando in The Godfather, takes as his surname upon arriving in America. Anyhow, back to Gagliano. Tommy was said to be born to Luciano Gagliano and Lucia Oliveri. However, there is some information that suggests that his father is actually Angelo Gagliano, who was a former capo in the Sicilian Mafia in Corleone. However, records show that Angela did not marry until 1902, and Tommy was born in 1883. So unless he was born out of wedlock, it's likely that Luciano was his real father. There is not much known about his parents or his early life, but in 1905, my research showed that he emigrated to New York City where he settled in East Harlem and found work in a feed store. Some reports say that he was naturalized as a citizen in 1915, and other records show that he applied for a passport in January 1920 in order to travel abroad. Interestingly, Mariano Mersalisi, a known associate and future Lucchese crime family soldier, is the identifying witness on his application. Tommy's desired uses for the passport included visiting his mother in Italy. On his passport, his occupation was listed as Hay Straw Grain, while his address is listed as 2097 First Avenue, New York City. He is subsequently seen on the passenger manifest of the SS Presidente Wilson sailing from Palermo and arriving in New York on April 20th, 1920. In the early 1920s, he married Giuseppina Josephine Pomilla, who was also from Corleone. A margin note on his baptismal record verified that this marriage occurred in New York at the Church of St. Lucia on October 23, 1921. Joe Valacci provides the only physical glimpse we have of Gagliano. According to Valacci, Tommy was a big tall guy, a little bald, he looked like a businessman. Valachi first met Gagliano when using his talents as a bouncer, he worked over some people who were creating problems in the building unions. Valachi claims he refused to take money from Gagliano for the work because he wanted to be perceived as a friend instead of a goon for hire. This decision would serve Valachi well over his career. While not much is known about his early life in crime, at some point in the late teens and early 1920s, Gagliano officially joins the criminal underworld and becomes an associate of the crime family, now known as the Genovese family, which was at the time headed by Giuseppe Joe Morello, also known as the Clutch Hand, based in East Harlem. But at some point, Gagliano decides to move his interests to the Bronx and partners with his brother-in-law, Nunzio Pomilla, in the lathing and hoisting business. He appears to use this business as a front and began working for another New York family headed by Bronx-based gangster Gattiano Tommy Reyna, who had been a former Morello captain. Tommy would eventually work his way up to the role of underboss and would serve as one of Reyna's top lieutenants. Gagliano, along with Tommy Three-Finger Brown Lucchese and Stefano Steve Rondelli, were viewed as the most powerful members of the Reyna family at the time. Tommy Reyna, like Gagliano, hailed from Corleone and was about the same age. He had a monopoly over icebox distribution rackets and controlled most of the criminal enterprises in the Bronx. His Borgata also had operations in East Harlem, and by the late 1920s, the Reyna and Morello families were most definitely enemies. 
Gagliano and Antonio Monforte organized the Plasters Information Bureau in the Bronx during April 1928. Local contractors who refused to join the association and paid dues were soon visited by a strong-arm goon squad. By 1929, the two partners established the United Lathing Company and hired Michael McCloskey, the czar of the Lathers Union, to help them gain a foothold in that trade. A 1932 Treasury Department probe revealed that almost half a million dollars had been extorted from the industry that year. Gagliano was convicted on tax evasion, a fairly successful way to nail big mobsters at the time, and handed a sentence of 15 months. Given that Al Capone got 11 years, which was a stiff sentence for the similar charges, it goes to show just how low-key Gagliano was to only do about 15 months. Though Sicilian, Gagliano did not take part in the Cleveland Statler Hotel meeting in December 1928, which was alleged to be a meeting of the Unione Siciliano. His future fellow family leaders, Vincent Mangano and Joseph Profaci, were two of 23 men arrested after the handiwork of a Cleveland patrolman on a foot patrol exposed the gathering. Gagliano did not attend the Atlantic City Conference held in May 1929 either. Little is known about the reason for the Hotel Statler meeting. David Critchley, in his book, The Origin of Organized Crime in America, believes the goal was to discuss the killing of Brooklyn Mafia boss Salvatore Di Aquila and additional assassinations in Chicago. Chicago police believed it was merely a meeting of captains of industry to elect a successor to Unione Siciliano president Tony Lombardo, who had been killed three months earlier. Of course, the 1929 Atlantic City Conference, one of the largest gatherings ever, the mob underworld, was a meeting among top mafiosi of the time to discuss how to react to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, as well as to determine the future direction of the criminal underworld in light of the violent bootleg wars going on in New York City and Chicago, the need to diversify income streams with the coming end of prohibition, and reorganization and consolidation of the underworld into a national crime syndicate. At the time, there was a much larger conflict brewing, which would come to be known as the Castellamorese War. During the late 1920s, a bitter gang rivalry arose in New York between Joseph, Joe the Boss Mazzaria, the most powerful mobster in New York, and Salvatore Maranzano, head of the Castellamorese Sicilian clan who had arrived in 1925 on orders from Vito Cassiofero in a bid to take over the mafia in the United States. The entire New York mob was either at war or on the verge of it. Mazzaria and Marizano were each attempting to take control of the underworld, each with the support of various street gangs and mafia contingents. For the time being, Mazzaria was the stronger of the two, and as a result, the closer to achieving the goal of total underworld supremacy. At some point, we'll do a separate show on the Castellamorese War, but before we jump into the tactical points of the conflict, it's important to note that the early structure of what would eventually become the five families was already somewhat in place. In Joseph Bonanno's A Man of Honor, he introduces us to the early families and explains that the five family operations were clearly in place to Maranzano's post-Castellamorese war setup. In New York City, there were five families, which had formed spontaneously as Sicilian immigrants settled there. The number five was not preordained, it just worked out that way. 
The dominant early family was that of Joe Mazzaria. At one time or another, this family included Peter Morello, Charlie Luciano, Joe Adonis, Frank Costello, and Augie Paisano, to mention a few. The second major family was headed by Al Mineo. His real name in Italian was Manfredi, an avowed ally of Mazzaria's. This clan included Tata Chiricchio, Joe Trena, Vincent Mangano, Frank Scalise, and Albert Anastasia. These families had interests in both Manhattan and Brooklyn. The Bronx, however, was the domain of the third family, that headed by Tom Reyna. In this family were such men as Gattiano, Tommy Gagliano, Tommy Lucchese, and Steve Rondelli. The fourth family was headed by Joe Profacci and his right-hand man, Joe Magliocco. The fifth family was the Castella Marese clan of Brooklyn and Manhattan. For clarification's sake, the Mazzaria Borgata would eventually become the modern-day Genovese family, the Mineos would become the Gambinos, the Reynas would become the Lucchese's, the Profacci's would become the Columbo's, and the Castella Marese clan becomes the Bonanno family. Back to the war. In early 1930, the Castella Marese War began in New York City and took its name from the Sicilian coastal town of Castella Marese del Golfo. From this small town in Sicily, a clannish group of mobsters came to the United States and spread to satellite cities like Buffalo, Chicago, and Detroit, but were closely tied to a rising New York City gang chieftain, Salvatore Maranzano. As previously mentioned, Maranzano comes to New York in 1925 on orders from Don Vito Cassio Ferro in a bid to take over the mafia in the United States. On the opposite side, you have the much more powerful Giuseppe Joe the Boss Mazzaria. He was, at the time, the closest thing to a boss of all bosses, and this was the driving force behind the war, the need for dominance and control over all families. The root of this was money, but in part it was also due to vanity, arrogance, and pride. In the end, the war lasted some 14 months and took dozens of lives. The spark that officially started the Castella Marese War was the murder of Gattiano Tommy Reyna, Gagliano's boss. The eventual mob turncoat, Joe Valachi, claims Tommy Reyna was murdered after he resisted the efforts of Mazzaria to muscle in on his ice distribution business. This was in the years before electric refrigeration, which made it a very lucrative racket at the time. In public, Reyna had formed an alliance with Mazzaria, who had absorbed into his now-powerful organization the remnants of the much-weakened Morello family. In private, Tom Reyna expressed admiration for Maranzano, the only one who had the balls to stand up to Joe the Boss. An informant within Reyna's family relayed these sentiments to Reyna's paisano from Corleone, Peter Morello, and Morello reported it to Masseria. Masseria learned of Reyna's betrayal and ordered Charles Lucky Luciano to arrange Reyna's murder. According to Bonanno, Reyna was a fence straddler in the pending bitterness going on between Masseria and Maranzano, but in private admired the latter. When word of this got back to Masseria Lieutenant Peter the Clutch Hand Morello, Joe the Boss took action. Now here's where it gets interesting. To call the Castella Marese War a two-sided affair is a massive oversimplification. While it's true that the battle was primarily between Joe Masseria's faction and Salvatore Maranzano's Sicilian faction, there was a third group at play beneath it all, the Young Turks led by Charles Lucky Luciano, 
and aided by Meyer Lansky, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, and others who were beginning to feel disenfranchised by the old world mustache peats, a derogatory slang name for gangsters who were set in the old ways of not trusting any non-Sicilian and prioritizing prejudice against other ethnicities over making money. In the background, the young Turks were secretly conspiring to defeat both sides and often played both sides against the middle to weaken both Masseria and Maranzano. Reina was an important Masseria partner, albeit not an enthusiastic one. He was casting friendly eyes towards Maranzano, especially after Masseria began pressuring him for a cut of his rackets. Through allies serving under Reina, especially Tom Gagliano and Tommy Lucchese, Luciano himself also allied with Masseria, learned of the Masseria plans to assassinate Marizano's supporters Joe Perfacci and Joe Bonanno. Since Luciano was counting on Perfacci and Bonanno in this future national crime syndicate, he wanted to prevent their deaths, and equally, he did not want Reina to defect to Maranzano since that might tilt the contest too much in the latter's favor. Therefore, the Luciano forces decided Reina had to be killed. In his so-called The Last Testament of Lucky Luciano, he claims, I really hated to knock off Tom Reina. And none of my guys really wanted to either. Reina was a man of his word, he had culture, and he was a very honorable Italian. This need not be taken as pure gospel. Luciano gained the allegiance of Gagliano and Lucchese by promising them the Reina Empire. Say what you will about the authenticity of that book, but it certainly adds some potential color and intrigue to the situation. On the Wednesday night of his murder, February 26, 1930, Reyna, as he did once every week, had dinner at his aunt's home on Sheridan Avenue in the Bronx. Some have speculated that he was actually leaving his mistress's house. When Reyna left the house, future mob powerhouse Vito Genovese, at the time a Luciano underling, was waiting. Reyna was surprised to see him, but started to wave his hand at Genovese, as he did Vito blew his fucking head off with a sawed-off shotgun. Vito, and some say a second hitman, left a weapon under a parked car and escaped. On Reyna's body, police found a handgun and $804 in cash. If you've done any research on Vito Genovese, this is early vintage Vito for sure. He was absolutely a feared hitter, so to speak. The murder of Reyna was to be the spark that lit the fuse and led to all-out war between Masseria and Maranzano forces. Side fact, Valachi would later marry Reyna's daughter. And as we mentioned, Gagliano attends this wedding, which goes to show how fleeting the mob life is given that he more than likely set up the bride's father to be murdered. Think about that. It's at this point that all hell breaks loose and both sides really begin going after each other. Bodies begin dropping and even Luciano nearly gets killed in the conflict. Gagliano is right in the thick of it all. So, after Tom Reyna is assassinated, Joe the Boss decides to make a move that will end up coming back to haunt him later on. As he had done in a separate issue with Detroit, Masseria quickly backed one of his own supporters to take charge of the family. In this case, Masseria endorsed Joe Pinzolo to become the new godfather of the Reina family. Here's a little background color on Joe Pinzolo. Charles Lucky Luciano, who was seldom shy about commenting on people he disliked, provides this opinion on the man. As big a shit as Masseria was, he didn't hold a candle to Pinzolo. 
that guy was fatter, uglier, and dirtier than Masseria was on the worst day when the old bastard didn't take a bath, which was most of the time. Word has it that Gagliano wasn't a fan of Pinzolo or his personal hygiene habits either. And it's this move that triggers Gagliano to form a splinter group within the Reina family in open opposition to Masseria and Pinzolo. Gagliano's group attracted Tommy Lucchese, Steve Rondello, Johnny DiCaro, as well as Dominic the Gap Petrilli, a friend of Valachi's who informed him that Pinzolo was not long for this world. At this point, things are beginning to go very wrong for Joe the Boss as he loses his top man, Giuseppe Morello. According to Joe Bonanno, Maranzano used to say that if we hope to win the war, we should get to Joe Morello before the old fox stopped following his daily routines as Maranzano had already stopped doing. Once Morello went undercover, the old man could exist forever on a diet of hard bread, cheese, and onions. We would never find him. Morello never got a chance to go on such a severe diet. He went to his Harlem office as usual one morning along with two of his men. All three were shot to death. Masseria had lost his best man in the brains of his outfit. The clutch hand was gone. And then, on September 9th, 1930, Joe Pinzola was murdered in an office leased by Tommy Lucchese in the Brokaw building on Broadway. Pinzolo was lured to the office and then shot five times. There are two versions of who murdered Pinzola. Valachi claims Girolamo Bobby Doyle Santucci killed him, while Luciano says it was Dominic Petrilli. Neither man was arrested. Instead, Lucchese was indicted, but the charges were dropped due to lack of evidence. To replace Pinzolo, Masseria appointed Gagliano as head of the Reina gang. It is believed that by this point, Gagliano and Lucchese formed a secret alliance with Maranzano while still professing loyalty to Masseria. After the death of Peter Morello, Masseria went into hiding. Nothing had gone right for him by this point in the war. He was on a losing streak, so to speak. He had lost Morello, which was followed by the loss of Joe Pinzolo, the man Masseria had supported to head the Reina family after the slaying of Tom Reina. Unbeknownst to Masseria, people within the Reina family are the ones who eliminated Pinzolo. The Reina family could no longer be counted on to aid Masseria, but he just didn't know it yet. Gagliano was to become a secret financier of the Castellamarese War through his United Lathing Company. According to Joe Valachi, Gagliano supplied most of the funds for Maranzano's struggle against Masseria. The estimate of Gagliano's support is around $140,000 to $150,000, more than $2 million in today's money. It's safe to say that without this type of financial backing, the war likely ends quickly and in favor of Masseria. It's at this point where things really start to become a blowout in favor of Maranzano. On November 5, 1930, two more Masseria loyalists, Steve Ferrigno and Alfred Mineo, were assassinated. The gangsters were mowed down in front of an apartment house on Pelham Parkway in the Bronx. This is the work that results in Joe Valachi getting his button and becoming a made member of the Mafia. Valachi claims he was one of three gang members initiated in a home 90 miles north of New York City. The ceremony took place in a room in front of approximately 40 men. Valachi claims that during the initiation rite, Joe Bonanno was named his godfather and was to be responsible for him. Not surprisingly, Bonanno insists he had never met nor spoke to Joe Valachi. However, he claims that after the Ferrigno and Mineo slayings that the Maranzano forces and Gagliano's men held a week-long celebration in late December 1930 near Hyde Park, New York. 
According to a man of honor, we celebrated our latest victory and the end of another year with a week-long party around Christmas time at a farm in upstate New York near Hyde Park. In addition to Maranzano and his personal staff, the party was attended by Stefano Magadino and some of his men from Buffalo, by Joe Zarilli and some of his men from Detroit, by Gattiano Gagliano, together with Lucchese and some of his men from the Bronx, by other leaders from Brooklyn, and even by some early defectors from the Mineo family, such as Frank Scalise and Joe Trena. As the war continued, Masseria began suffering more defeats and key defections. The problem is, he's in hiding, with a heavy entourage of bodyguards and in a position where nobody can get to him. The only way to get to him was to lure him out somehow or get a defection from within, which is just what happens. On April 15th, 1931, the castella Marese War officially came to an end when Masseria was murdered in a Coney Island restaurant after being set up by his underling, the great Charles Lucky Luciano. The shooters are said to have been Albert Anastasia, Vito Genovese, Joe Adonis, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, who along with Luciano had made a deal with Maranzano guaranteeing their power if they switched sides and killed their own boss. A month after the killing, Maranzano called a grand meeting said to be attended by four to five hundred members of the Italian and Sicilian underworld. It's at this meeting the five family leaders were designated by Maranzano. Lucky Luciano would lead what would become the Genovese family. Gagliano would lead what would eventually become the Lucchese family. Joe Perfacci for the Columbos. Maranzano would lead the Bonanos. And Frank Scalise would be named the boss of what would become the Gambinos. All would answer to and pay tribute to Maranzano, who decided to designate himself as the Capo de Tutacapi, or Boss of Bosses. This setup lasted just a few months as there were suspicions both on the part of Luciano and Maranzano of the other party. Luciano was furious that Maranzano, who he finally realized may have been even more backwards than Masseria in his thinking, would declare himself Boss of Bosses. On the other side, Maranzano didn't fully trust anyone who wasn't from his village in Sicily and had many prejudices against working with non-Italians. He trusted Luciano least of all and even planned to murder him, and even went so far as to hire famed hitman Vincent Mad Dog Call to do the job. But Luciano struck first. On September 10, 1931, Luciano sent a group of Jewish mobsters to Maranzano's offices posing as government agents along with Tommy Lucchese. Luciano recounts that on the afternoon of the murder, Lucchese went to Maranzano's office saying he had a vital matter to discuss at Tom Gagliano's request. Luciano was actually striking first before hired killer Vincent Mad Dog Call could execute a Maranzano-prepared hit list that had Luciano's name at the top. In all probability, Lucchese was there to finger Maranzano for the hitman, which he did. With his bodyguards disarmed, the hitman stabbed and shot Maranzano to death right in his office. During this period of massive instability within the underworld, Gagliano remained firmly in control of the old Reina gang. After the murder, Valachi, who had been working as Maranzano's driver, went into hiding in the Reina family's attic. He eventually met with Gagliano and Lucchese, who, after determining where Valachi's loyalties were, asked him to join their family. However, after conferring with Petrilli, Bellacci decided to go with Vito Genovese in the Luciano family.
In the wake of the Maranzano murder, Luciano kept the same five-family structure as practical, but made a few key modifications. First, he got rid of the title of boss of bosses, though he was clearly considered first among equals. Second, he created the commission in which each of the bosses of the five families, as well as a handful of other families around the country, would handle disputes between various families before things devolved into bloody gang wars. They established at this same time the National Syndicate, installed the governing rules with all the major authority flowing back to the main commission in New York. Again, Joe Bonanno shares from a man of honor. Again, Joe Bonanno shares from a man of honor. Once again, the leaders of my world realigned and repositioned themselves according to the new political reality. Charlie Lucky's star was on the rise. Stefano's star seemed undiminished and perhaps even enhanced. Scalise's star fell. Scalise had been too close a supporter to Maranzano. With Lucky's rise to power, Scalise became a liability to his family, which didn't want to antagonize the powerful Luciano and his cohorts. Scalise was replaced as father by Vincent Mangano. Therefore, the five New York families and the fathers were Luciano, Gagliano, Profaci, Mangano, and me. I was a newborn star. It is at this point when Gagliano becomes the first modern boss of the Gagliano family named in his honor, with Tommy Lucchese as his underboss. As a boss, Gagliano also became a founding member of the commission. It is here that information about Gagliano becomes very sparse. With the exception of attending the Bellacci wedding in 1932, he isn't mentioned again until his death in the early 1950s. However, there are still things that we can ascertain about his successful 20-year reign as boss. Even after the Castellamorese War ended, there was still quite a bit of turmoil in the underworld. During the subsequent decades after the war, Tommy Gagliano steered his family through a period of high tension and shifting alliances between the five families. In 1936, Luciano was sent to prison, and then in 1946, deported to Italy. With Luciano's absence, power on the commission was held by an alliance of bosses, Vincent Mangano, Joe Bonanno, Stefano Magadino, and Joe Profaci. Gagliano had to be very careful in the face of this alliance and was keen to keep a low profile while furthering the business interests of his section of Cosa Nostra. Throughout the 1930s and 1940s, Tommy Gagliano and Tommy Lucchese led the family into areas of business that were very profitable. They worked within the clothing and trucking industries, as well as industries such as gasoline rationing, meat, and black market sugar. Gagliano realized that staying out of the picture was best for business. Almost never seen in public, Gagliano stayed at home most of the time. Gagliano passed his orders to his soldiers through Lucchese and other people in his close circle that he trusted. It can be said that Gagliano perfected the use of proxies and buffers in order to insulate himself from law enforcement scrutiny. As previously mentioned, he did this so well that he only took a single pinch in 1932 for income tax evasion and only did around 15 months in prison. Tommy Lucchese, who would become the second family boss and who is the modern family's namesake, was a much more prominent figure and someone who was more known to be in the public's eye. However, his boss, friend, and mentor Gagliano was so rarely out in the public that his whereabouts were entirely unknown from 1951 to 1953. It is this early secrecy and privacy that was the key to the success of the Lucchese crime family in the early years. By the 1980s, the Lucchese family had grown into a behemoth making billions of dollars per year. 
but none of that would have been possible without the likes of criminal masterminds such as Gagliano. The ultimate sign of just how mysterious Gagliano was is this. Nobody is actually sure when he died. In 1951, Tommy Lucchese stated during the Senate hearings on organized crime that Gagliano died on February 16, 1951. However, some historians actually believe Gagliano died in 1953. It has been speculated that Gagliano retired in 1951 and turned leadership over to Lucchese, but kept this information secret to prevent law enforcement or media scrutiny. However, there is no concrete evidence to support this theory. According to Joseph Fallaci, Gagliano died of natural causes in 1953. The cause of death was said to either be heart condition or cancer. Nobody's sure. You can see Gagliano portrayed in pop culture. He's mentioned in the Valachi papers in 1972, starring Charles Bronson, when Salvatore Maranzano, played by Joseph Wiseman, announces the bosses of the five families. He also sees a small mention in Boardwalk Empire's last episode entitled El Dorado in 2014. Gagliano is played by Salvatore Inzerillo. He has a small speaking role and is seen sitting at the table as Lucky Luciano gathers the country's most powerful crime bosses and forms the commission. Tommy Gagliano is interred at a private mausoleum in Woodlawn Cemetery, Bronx, New York. So that's it, our first gangster biography. If you like this episode and would like to see me do more gangster biographies, let me know in the comments below. And of course, don't forget to like and subscribe my channel on YouTube or feel free to listen wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be on the lookout for my upcoming Patreon page. Until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.